From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. After decades of watching the NATO military alliance move right up to its border, and after months of having its security guarantees dismissed, Russia attacks military targets in neighboring Ukraine. We speak to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which came into existence in 1949 on an explicitly anti-Soviet basis, should have collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Instead, NATO crept even closer to the borders of Russia. In response to Russia's action, the U.S. announced new economic sanctions, claiming that Russia's actions are unprovoked. Economist Richard Wolf joins us to follow the money of war. The United States has stood out alone in the world as being the number one country running around the world, slapping sanctions on Russia, on China, on Iran, on countries that do business with them. All that and much more coming up on the show. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. After three decades of watching the NATO military alliance move right up to its border, and in recent months having its security guarantees dismissed by the West, Russia attacked military targets on Thursday in neighboring Ukraine, which the U.S. and NATO have been stocking with advanced offensive weapons. There were dueling narratives on the conflict on Thursday, Putin addressed Russia in the early morning, announcing that the Russian military would conduct what he called a special operation to protect Russian communities in eastern Ukraine, where thousands have been killed in the last eight years. He referred to the killings as a genocide. I have decided to conduct a special military operation. The goal is to protect the people who for eight years suffer bullying and genocide from the Kiev regime. And for this, we aim for the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine. We'll bring to the court those who committed multiple sanguinary crimes against civilians, including Russian citizens. We do not plan to occupy Ukrainian territories. Meanwhile, as Russia said Thursday that they were only striking military targets within Ukraine, U.S. officials and their allies looped continuously on corporate media, either denied or omitted the fact that thousands of ethnic Russians have been killed in eastern Ukraine by Ukrainian forces since the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba called references to the killings absurd. President Biden announced Thursday a fresh round of economic sanctions against Russia, including those against five Russian banks holding $1 trillion in assets and blocking high-tech exports to the country. He called Russia the aggressor and said the attack was unprovoked. Putin chose this war, and now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe costs on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. We have purposefully designed these sanctions to maximize the long-term impact on Russia and to minimize the impact on the United States and our allies. We'll talk more about this latest war of words and literal war about claims of genocide later in the show with Professor Gerald Horn. But right now, to help us cut through the economic fog of war, I'm joined by economist Richard Wolf. 
visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School University in New York City, host of the popular Pacifica show, Economic Update, and the author of several books, including The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, we're honored to have you back. Now, I know the subject of the economics of this current crisis is complex. There's the situation in Russia, Ukraine, and Europe, and throughout the world because of trade relations, like Ukraine is even a grain supplier to Africa. But in the run-up to Russia's military action in Ukraine on Thursday, politicians here in D.C., like uh, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, was promised, and he's the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was promising the mother of all sanctions against Russia. So my question is, Putin knew these sanctions were coming, that they were going to be brought anyway. So it seems that he needed to at least create his own security guarantees that weren't being uh, respected in terms of these months of negotiation. So what do you think about the analysis that all of these negotiations with the U.S. and NATO and them refusing to meet Russia's uh, security guarantees were really designed to lead us to this point where the U.S. is able to sanction Russia and hurt Russia economically? Well, let me talk a little bit about the sanctions and what they can be expected to do. The United States has stood out alone in the world, and it's been true now for at least the last 35 years, that is back into the 1990s, as being the number one country running around the world, slapping sanctions on Russia, on China, on Iran, on countries that do business with them, on companies that do business with the countries that do business with whoever it is Washington uh, has put on the bad list. So there is nothing new about these sanctions. They aren't, in, in many cases, they aren't even bigger than the ones that have been dealt with before. I believe it is fair to say that the overwhelming majority of the objectives announced with the sanctions were not achieved by means of the sanctions. In other words, whatever damage was done was offset by the available mechanisms of those countries and those companies to get around, to evade, to compensate, to get support from governments, to live with and to overcome those sanctions. Keep in mind that sanctions on the Russians were pretty heavy back in the 1990s. They were a lesson then to every Russian businessman or woman, to every Russian governmental agency, that you have problems with the United States, you can expect to have them, you can expect to have sanctions be one of the things they do, so it would be downright idiotic for a, a Russian company or a Russian billionaire not to have taken steps long ago to insulate himself or herself from these sanctions. If you add to that, that sanctions have been threatened against Russia 
in the event that it does what it may now have done. It's a little early, but it looks like that. Sanctions were threatened. Sanctions were promised. They've had days, weeks with which to prepare for what they were told might be coming if they did action A or B. Yeah, it's possible they paid no attention. Yeah, it's possible they ignored uh, 35 years of history of this sort. But the very idea that we're supposed to believe that the uh, sanctions in the past were effective, but at the same time to believe that they didn't learn anything from it, that they took no protective steps, this is, uh, it's not believable. Therefore, for me, what I have seen so far is an example of large power politics, which I don't admire, which I don't support. Big, powerful country feeling whatever I can, let's call it threatened, whatever exactly that means, and therefore deciding it's big enough and its military is strong enough and the global situation is such that they can act and do what they want on the ground. And my last point, much of the world looks upon this as very bizarre. And Mr. Melendez's comments are like bizarre squared. And why? Over the last 20 years, the United States, feeling threatened, invaded Afghanistan, a country that it was not at war with, invaded Iraq, a country that it was not at war with, ravaged those countries, killed huge numbers of people directly and indirectly, occupied the country for 20 years, when at the worst you could say is they had some indirect relationship with 9-11. But as most people will remember, the vast majority of individuals who were involved in the assault of 9-11 came from Saudi Arabia, a staunch ally of the United States. So for American officials to get up there and bloviate about how this is an outrageous intrusion of a country that violates this or that international law, much of that is true but coming from the United States, given its behavior, the only thing you can do is shake your head and admire the sheer gall of it all. So I watched the stock market kind of go down and go up on Thursday. And uh, one of the analysts on Bloomberg was kind of, that's a good word, bloviating about how the they reacted well because they the sanctions weren't as tough as they thought they were going to be. So I'm wondering, is this whole, in line with what you were saying, is this whole sanctions regime that the U.S. has gotten it used to implementing, has it just basically run its course now? I don't think quite. I mean, they're going to milk this for as much public relations as they can. Now, I know you mentioned the the idea of boots on the ground are pretty, that idea is pretty much out of the question. But right. talk to us about the fact that Europe allowed the U.S. to kind of maneuver them out of what is their, in their best interest. For example, 
Germany pausing certification on Nord Stream 2, which is bringing affordable gas to Germany. And what instead they're going to import this expensive liquefied gas from the, from the U.S. So that's why I was kind of wondering, is economics underneath all of this, as opposed to any pretension of, of care for the Ukrainian people? Obviously, they haven't said anything as 13,000 people have been killed over the last eight years, you know, in the Donbass, you know, ethnic Russians. Is economics really at the bottom of this? Economics is a very, very important part. You're quite right that uh, nobody seems to have cared very much among the European powers about the people who have lost their lives in Eastern Europe, uh, among other places in the Ukraine in recent years. But let's be honest. How much concern did you think there was in the European countries for the much larger number of people uh, that were killed in 20 years of war in Afghanistan, that at least nominally some of those Europeans were part of a coalition? I mean, it wasn't a real coalition. It was the United States and a few other people a little bit, and the same in Iraq. But there were huge losses of life, immense destruction of an economy, and most European people stopped paying attention years ago. I don't compliment them for that, but I think that's the reality of of what is going on. Well, I've been speaking with Richard Wolf, visiting professor in the graduate program in international affairs at the New School University in New York City. And as I said, he's the host of the popular Pacifica show, Economic Update, and the author of several books, including The System is the Sickness, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Thanks, Rick. Thank you, Esther. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. back in the States, three former Minneapolis police officers who were on the scene when Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd in 2020 have been found guilty of violating Floyd's civil rights when they failed to give him medical aid. J. Alexander King, Thomas Lane, and Tutau were convicted of depriving Floyd of his civil rights while acting under government authority. King and Tao are also guilty of not intervening to stop Chauvin from using excessive force. The men are scheduled for trial in June on state charges of aiding and abetting murder and manslaughter. And in Georgia, the three men convicted of murdering jogger Ahmaud Aubrey are now convicted of federal hate crimes in his death. Gregory and Travis McMichael and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, are serving life in prison for Aubrey's murder and could each face an additional life sentence. Initially, the Department of Justice had offered the men a plea deal so that they would not be tried for the hate crimes. But just as in the criminal case, pressure from Arbery's family and community forced prosecutors to take the case to trial. A sentencing date is not set. Also here in the States, hundreds of anti-war activists gathered virtually Tuesday to strategize about avoiding a war before Thursday's attacks and how to cut through the blanket of corporate media coverage that includes no history of the conflict in Ukraine. 
activist Bruce Gagnon was among the speakers who pointed out the goal of the U.S. to weaken Russia economically and pointed out a 2019 study by the U.S. contractor, the RAND Corporation, titled Ways the U.S. Could Overextend and Imbalance Russia. After headlines, we'll hear from Leela Anand for the Answer Coalition, who disentangled the web of war information, once again trapping the American people. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. saying that the world has come to the very brink of what might be a major war. My name is Leela Anand and I'm the Southern Regional Coordinator of the Answer Coalition. The decision by the Russian government to recognize the independent people's Republic of Donetsk and Luhansk and based on the recognition of those entities, the Russian Federation has sent its troops into these areas that until now constituted significant eastern regions of Ukraine. I don't need to tell any of you that the U.S. and NATO powers have declared the Russian actions as an invasion of a sovereign country. And we all know that the U.S. is imposing major economic sanctions uh, designed to cripple the Russian economy and to, in fact, destroy the Russian people. There are a few immediate questions that need to be addressed. And because I only have a few minutes, I'm going to try to do it quickly. So first, who is responsible? Russia has been labeled as the aggressor, and clearly Russian troops are inside what was formerly Ukraine. That is beyond dispute. But what is disputed is what caused the crisis. Why would Russia have intervened in eastern Ukraine knowing that it would face an avalanche of economic sanctions and possible political and diplomatic isolation, at least on some level? For those in the U.S. anti-war movement, it is critically important that we not fall in line with the chorus led by the militarists, by the military-industrial complex, by the imperial politicians of both parties, and by the capitalist media, which functions as their echo chamber. Let's not forget for a moment that while the U.S. protests loudly about Russia's violation of Ukraine's sovereignty, U.S. troops are currently illegally occupying and bombing Syria the land of Syria and the people of Syria, and that the U.S. has arrogated to itself the right to invade country after country, I don't need to name them. But even more so, it is the United States and NATO, which is a U.S.-led military alliance, which is responsible for constructing and maintaining a crisis and a posture and policy that has backed Russia into a corner. So whether one supports or opposes Russia's actions, there can be no denying that that it is the U.S. and NATO which have uh, step by step presented existential threats to the security of Russia and to the Russian people. And when the Russian government demanded that these actions by the U.S. and NATO come to an end, the Biden administration and the imperialists in both houses and both parties of Congress said loudly and clearly to Russia, hell no. We won't stop in our campaign of aggression. 
So here's what happened. The U.S. and NATO powers helped orchestrate a coup d'etat in 2014 that toppled the Ukrainian government that had sought to balance between East and West. One that said, no, it would not seek um, NATO membership. The new pro-Western Ukrainian government be began a military campaign against Russian-speaking people in the eastern later. part of Ukraine. A significant contingent leading the campaign were Nazis and neo-Nazis. Russia tried to come uh, to an agreement and did come to an agreement to bring that struggle to an end with the signing of the Minsk Agreement. And in fact, there were two agreements, Minsk I and Minsk II. The Ukrainian government, egged on by the U.S. government and NATO, refused to live up to the agreement. As a result, thousands have died. Just three minutes. The new government in Ukraine also requested membership in NATO, which would have the effect of placing advanced weapons, including nuclear missiles, on Russia's border. Weapons that would have a flight time of less than 10 minutes to their targets in Russia. And during the Trump administration, the U.S. canceled the INF treaty that had been signed by Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan in 1986. And that treaty banned the placement of missiles that had a flight range of 300 to 600 miles. This was of monumental importance. And what did the U.S. government do? It unilaterally canceled it. The U.S. also canceled the anti-ballistic missile treaty. These two acts made it clear to the Russian government that the U.S. was planning to place advanced nuclear missiles and engage in a nuclear first strike strategy that once in place would signal to Russia that Russia would never again have a day of peace, a day free from threat. The Russian government made it clear in the last few months that the U.S. would never accept the placement of such missiles on the Mexican-U.S. border or the U.S.-Canadian border. Instead of saying yes to Russia's reasonable demands, U.S. imperialism stoked the crisis. Without its demands being realized, then the Russian government and the country of Russia would be forever humble and subjected to nuclear blackmail. So today, we in the Answer Coalition, you know, we're joining with others in this country and around the world to demand not simply that NATO stop its further expansion. We're demanding that NATO be dissolved because NATO is the threat. The U.S. war drive is the threat. And we are also demanding that instead of endlessly going to war and spending trillions of dollars on war, that the resources of this country be used to provide that which human beings actually need. So end NATO today, not tomorrow. Thank you. Change? I guess change is good for any of us. Whatever it takes for any of y'all to get up out the hood, I'm with you. I ain't mad at you. Got nothing but love for you. Do you think, boy? Yeah. All the homies that I ain't talked to in a while. I'ma send this one out for y'all. Know what I mean? Cause I ain't mad at you. Heard y'all tearing up out there. Kicking up dust. Giving a mother up. <laughs> yes. Cause I ain't mad at you. I ain't mad at you. Stuck in prison, barely breathing, believing that the world is a prison. It's like a ghetto we can never leave. A broken rose giving bloom through the cracks of the concrete. So many other things for us to see. 
things to be Our history so full of tragedy and misery To all my homies never made it home The dead peers I shed tattoo tears for when I'm alone Picture us inside a ghetto heaven A place to rest, finding peace through this land of stress In my chest I feel pain coming sudden storms Life full of rain in this game, watch for land thorns Our unborn never got to grow, never got to see what's next In this world full of countless threats I beg God to make a way for our ghetto kids to breathe Show a sign, make us all believe Cause I ain't mad at you For all the homeboys that passed away I ain't mad All the homeboys locked in jail All the people that lost a loved one this year This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, after decades of watching the NATO military alliance move right up to its border, and in recent months having its security guarantees dismissed, Russia attacked military targets in neighboring Ukraine on Thursday. And in Ukraine, the U.S. and NATO have stocked advanced offensive weapons. Here to help us unpack the latest is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, these are very tense and just upside down times here, especially here in D.C., where I'm hearing two dueling versions of current events and two dueling versions of even history. And I thought about our conversation last week when we were talking about the history wars for the Black History Month special and how in so many of these settler colonial regimes like the United States, establishing the narrative and claiming the narrative is very important. I also thought about our conversation about genocide because this week in in his, what he called a special operation in Ukraine, attacking these military targets, President Putin evoked genocide in terms of what he's saying has occurred to the ethnic Russian population in East Ukraine. So I know we have a lot to unpack, but maybe we should start there. Well, I think it's appropriate to start there because quite frankly, we may not only be talking about genocide, we may be talking about mega genocide because we're talking about uh, two countries, Washington and Moscow, both with thousands of nuclear warheads, not to mention those in the uh, arsenal of London and Paris. And I don't think that either side necessarily wants to see a nuclear exchange, but these kinds of crises oftentimes spin out of control. First of all, let me say that what's going on now is clearly a failure of diplomacy. When war erupts, generally speaking, it's a result of a failure of diplomacy, and that we must lament. But also, I think we need to analyze the situation because it's so dire. And when we analyze the situation, it seems to me we quickly alight upon two contradictions, two disjunctures, one recent, one historical. The recent one is, is that 
Russia, since the demise of the sellout regime of Boris Yeltsin, has outgrown the security architecture to which he co-signed. That is to say that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which came into existence in 1949 on an explicitly anti-Soviet basis, led by the United States of America, uh, should have collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Yet that did not happen. Instead, despite the protestations to the contrary, NATO crept even closer to the borders of Russia, uh, placing bases and missiles all around this major country. And so in 2007, when Vladimir Putin spoke at the Munich Security Conference, he complained bitterly about this, complained bitterly about what was to come, in fact, when Poland is talking about establishing a a Fort Trump, the fact that NATO has doubled in size since 1997, including such minnows as North Macedonia and Montenegro, which then leads to these countries having to dip into their treasuries and buy arms from Raytheon, the former home of Pentagon chief Lloyd Austin, and Lockheed Martin, which I dare say is going through a stock price that's going through the roof. And then you have the specter and spectacle of Ukraine, uh, one of the most populous nations on the European continent, a former constituent member of the Soviet Union, seeking to join, according to its constitution, NATO, even though it's cheek by jowl with Russia, uh, even though as we all know, and as has been confirmed by the conservative British journalist Peter Hitchings, the regime and the country is replete with neo-Nazis. So today, as we speak, as war, or as Moscow would call it, a special military operation, has unfolded on the Russia-Ukraine border, Bluntly, the issue is whether or not there will be regime change in Kiev or regime change in Moscow. Regime change in Moscow is key to the U.S. policy because Washington realizes that it's very difficult to confront the major antagonists, speaking of the People's Republic of China, very difficult to confront Beijing directly because to confront Beijing directly, you would have to confront Tesla and Apple and Microsoft and GM and Starbucks and KFC, uh, which is not in the cards at the moment. So the plan is to weaken a key and critical ally of the People's Republic of China, that is to say Russia, which then would complete a kind of encirclement of China and like a viper, allow China to be strangled, although that is the objective. And so what you see is that uh, it's also a plan to, in some ways, tighten the relationship between the European Union and Washington and make the European Union even more of a vassal uh, to Washington than it has been to this point which 
accomplishes another objective because as John Bolton, the disgraced former national security advisor under Trump admitted in his memoir, Mr. Trump, like those he represents, sees the European Union as number two on the list of antagonists to China. And so this squeeze on Russia accomplishes two strategic objectives and also has the byproduct of causing Germany to purchase natural gas, not from Russia, but from Texas. And at the same time, I must say, it's very disappointing that France has not been more energetic since it's the political leader of the European Union. Germany tends to tail after France for historical reasons. And yet, despite the fact that I think that President Macron could easily mobilize his population in order to engineer a new security architecture, he has not done so to this point. It's so important, I think, Gerald, that you kind of allowed us to pick up where we left off last week, because since that time, we marked the date that Malcolm X was assassinated on February 21st. And I thought about that also in connection to our conversation, because he also wanted to take that petition drawn up by the Civil Rights Congress in 1951, charging the U.S. with genocide. He wanted to take that back to the United Nations in the year before he was assassinated. And that whole era of uh, when you had so many people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America uh, gaining their independence after decades or if not centuries of colonial repression and exploitation by these some of these same European powers, to me, it's, it just draws a connection between that time and what we're talking about now. And I want to just pause for a second to remind listeners of your book, Communist Front, question mark, the Civil Rights Congress, 1946 to 1956. And it really just provides this essential analysis of that time when the Congress, along with the attorney, William Patterson, wanted the U.S. held accountable for its decades, if not centuries, of genocide, lynchings, rape, assault, the denial of basic human rights to the African-American population. And quite frankly, when I heard all this week, especially in the recent days, U.S. officials basically denying the existence of a genocide in eastern Ukraine, denying that 13,000 people had died there since the U.S.-backed coup in 2014, quite frankly, I started thinking about how they were being treated like the N-word, you know, treated like Black folks have been treated here in the United States, how Palestinians are treated, how Yemenis are treated, how the atrocities against Libyans and other sub-Saharan Africans living in Uh, Libya subjected to modern day slave auctions are treated and how this whole U.S. imperial project, when it's convenient, it doesn't see those victims like in Iraq or the the scientists or uh, it has assassinated in Iran or Syrians, for example. You know, none of these crimes, crimes of humanity by imperialism are, are acknowledged. What I found also in terms of the coverage this week is not not only the fact that the 
the tremendous carnage in East Ukraine has not been acknowledged. Uh, we actually had the Ukrainian representative at the UN calling this just a false pretext for uh, an invasion. I heard a scholar interviewed on Democracy Now! basically saying that Putin was lying, that there was no uh, killing of thousands of ethnic Russians in East Ukraine since the U.S.-backed coup in 2014. So I think that in addition to that omission, brave omission, I just think that Americans just basically aren't understanding the history important his other important history about Ukraine and Russia. Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are two critical conjunctures that we have to confront in contemplating this crisis. One recent, which I just articulated, uh, concerning how the current security architecture in Europe, dominated by NATO, does not fit the current conjuncture whereby Russia... Uh, contrary to popular opinion in Washington, is not the cipher that it was during the Yeltsin years. Uh, Listeners need to consult the book by the Stanford scholar Catherine Stoner entitled appropriately Russia Resurrected to get an idea of what I speak. But the other disjuncture is historical. What I mean is that When Western Europe was getting fat centuries ago on the plunder and pillage of the Americas and the African continent, a genocide that has still not been sufficiently acknowledged, Russia correspondingly was moving east across the continent of Asia. And therefore, it led to this contradiction in the security of the European continent, whereby the so-called richest powers led by London and Paris in the first place were not necessarily the dominant powers on the European continent, which is their backyard. Even today, Russia still has twice the population of the number two most populous nation, speaking of the Federal Republic of Germany, and it has the most territory and the most natural resources, including natural gas, oil, gold, etc. And so for centuries now, you have seen these Western European nations, then assisted post-1945 by the United States, trying to resolve that basic contradiction. But you can see it earlier with regard to Napoleon of France uh, seeking to invade Russia two centuries ago and, of course, being roundly defeated. You see it in the 1850s when Britain and France and the sick man of Europe, speaking of Turkey, gang up on Russia. You see it critically and crucially in 1905 when London sponsors the Japanese attack on Russia, which leads directly to the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, but also (laughs) leads to Japan uh, paying back London by ousting London from Hong Kong and Singapore and other uh, components of the British Empire. And then you see it again in 1972. We just marked the 50th anniversary of Nixon's trip to China, where an entente was effectuated on an anti-Soviet basis, which of course has led to the present crisis insofar as the payoff to China was massive foreign direct investment 
which has created this juggernaut, which has now led to this diabolical scheme of regime change in Moscow, which is the ultimate objective of Washington. And so it seems we're faced either with regime change in Kiev or regime change in Moscow. You know, I I wanted to add a few more incidents to that list that you were providing. So uh, a lot of people don't really think about in other ways that the imperialist powers in Europe and the U.S. have invaded uh, Russia and why they are determined not to have their Western border invaded again. So, of course, in World War I, and then when there was the so-called civil war after the revolution, how so many of these same imperialist uh, powers came in to fight on the side of the people fighting against the Russian revolution. So that was another time. And then, of course, Germany in World War II invading the, with Nazis, with the Nazi army invading Russia. So when people here, when Maybe people don't understand here that when Russia uh, knows that part of the Ukraine government is made up of Nazi forces, people who are extremely anti-Russia, that means something to them. And so I think with with the numbers that you gave, the instances you cited, there's there's at least five or six times, if not more times, that Russia has been invaded in many of those times on its western border. Well, as you were speaking, I was also thinking of the point that on the mainstream media, you hear a lot of blather and bloviation about how supposedly this is the first major military mobilization on the European continent since 1945, since the end of World War II. Obviously, these folks have forgotten the U.S. and NATO bombing of the former Yugoslavia. And of course, we recall that during the height of that bombing, the United States sent a not-so-subtle message to Beijing by destroying its embassy in Belgrade, Serbia, through bombing. And then there's a lot of hypocrisy about the secessionist movement. Supposedly, uh, it's illegitimate for pockets of Ukraine to want to secede from the larger Ukraine, speaking of the Donbass. Although we know that the United States, uh, in destroying the former Yugoslavia, also served as the midwife for the birth of Kosovo, which Serbia stridently objected to. We know the United States served as the midwife for the secession of South Sudan from the larger Sudan. And we also know that in 1962, when there was the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States reacted hysterically to the idea that Moscow was putting defensive missiles on the island of Cuba in order to blunt a possible U.S. invasion of socialist Cuba and was willing to blow up the world uh, as a direct result. And so obviously what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, that is to say- And and we are still occupying illegally a base, a piece, a chunk of this little island nation called Guantanamo and where where we are torturing people and committing, you know, crimes against humanity. And when I when I heard you give that list, I thought about our ongoing occupation of Syria, the most oil rich and wheat rich 
uh, portion of that country, starving that people. We have allowed, I think, Trump to take the Golan Heights from the we've we've allowed Trump to take the Golan Heights from Syria and give it to Israel. And, you know, no one said any, you know, there are so many instances of this where the United States has stood by or, or like you said, midwife these types of land grabs. Well, that reminds me of, of other related points. Going back to my historical excursion, Russia was not standing still as the Western European powers and then the United States was ganging up on it. Many in our community, for example, uh, celebrate the defeat of the Italian invaders in what was then called Abyssinian, now Ethiopian, in the 1890s. But what's little known is that the Ethiopians, the Abyssinians, were armed to the teeth uh, by Russia. And we all know, I imagine, about uh, Moscow's support of national liberation movements in Southern Africa that led directly to the liberation of that entire region uh, from the domination of Western European powers, uh, such as uh, Portugal and Angola and Mozambique. And I think people need to realize that there is a further parallel between how Washington and the United States and the ruling class here has treated uh, Black people and how they've treated Russia, believe it or not. What I mean is we know in the, the Black community the United States did not like uh, socialist-oriented uh, Black people like Paul Robeson. They didn't like Black nationalist-oriented people like Malcolm X. You see the same. Washington waged a Cold War against the socialist republics of the Soviet Union, and now you have a nationalist in power in Moscow. They don't like them either. But what folks also need to realize is that we are going to be harmed one way or another even if we can set to one side the possibility of a nuclear exchange, which I'm not so certain about, but for the sake of discussion, let's do that. The fact of the matter is, is that energy prices are going to be going through the roof. They already, you already in Los Angeles, a, a gallon of gasoline at the pump is over $6. I expect it'll be higher before this winter ends. If you're heating your home with either natural gas or oil, you can expect those prices to rise uh, sooner rather than later uh, because we're talking about a unitary market in which Russia plays a major role in terms of supplying natural gas and uh, oil and petroleum. So this is a major crisis. It's difficult to overestimate its uh, ample amplitude. And uh, certainly we need to be in the streets. You know, it's so interesting that you, you mentioned the kind of connection between how the U.S. treats African-Americans here at home and how it's treated Russia. Uh, I was just looking on Thursday at uh, uh, comments, a press conference by the Progressive Caucus, some of the people who we normally feature on the program who are making um um, you know, good comments, you know, struggle in that political realm for things like Build Back Better and um, the kinds of reforms that, you know, poor people, working people in this country really need that we're not getting. 
But anyway, they were standing at the podium um, denouncing Russia, denouncing the Russia invasion. You know, people who I normally like to hear talk, like Representative Ilyana Presley of, of Massachusetts. And it was shocking to me in a way. And I realized that, you know, there are limits <laughs> to, I was just looking up also Thursday, the term Overton window. <laughs> so it, it comes in handy. There's, there are limits to the window of, of their, their political breadth. They don't have uh, a larger political uh, view of the world and understanding of this, this type of history and how it connects to uh, working class people of color here in the United States. Well, just one more point. I think that if and when this crisis comes to a conclusion, you may see, assuming there's regime change in Moscow, a revived North Atlantic bloc that then is poised for the showdown with the People's Republic of China. If regime change does not take place in Moscow, people should prepare themselves, I believe, for the inauguration of a new world order uh, dominated by China with Russia along for the ride, also including Iran. Uh, That is to say, we all know that one of the reasons Iran has been able to survive these sanctions imposed by Washington is because of its multi-billion dollar deals with the People's Republic of China. So this is a momentous event that is taking place as we speak. We're all witnesses to history. And one way or another, we're going to be faced with a different world once this crisis comes to a climax. Well, do you have any closing parting words, uh, Gerald, for our listeners before we sign up? Well, unfortunately, there may be a parallel between the history that the Civil Rights Congress and Paul Robeson were involved in 70-odd years ago and what we're experiencing today. Because recall that when the Civil Rights Congress was filing that petition at the United Nations charging the United States with genocide, one of the factors that tripped them up was that the United States then got involved in war on the Korean Peninsula, which helped to squash dissent which led directly to an attack on the Civil Rights Congress as not being sufficiently patriotic. And so here we are today, 70 plus years later, when you've had a Black Lives Matter movement, protests against police terror, and once again, war looms ominously on the horizon with those who are opposed and opposed also to police terror, facing the prospect of being squashed, which would give a new birth, a rebirth to the kind of police terror that has been bedeviling our community for oh so many years. My guest has been Professor Gerald Horn, the Morse Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. Thank you so much, Gerald. Thank you. And that will do it for today's episode of On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain 
onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, on patreon.com at onthegroundshow. You can also follow me on Instagram at Esther Averum, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Averum, I-V-E-R-E-M like Mary. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Averum, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcast, the social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included I Ain't Mad At You by Tupac, our own special remix. And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averum. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. 
So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.